This is an AMI podcast. Hi there. Welcome to Connecting Disability on AMI-audio. I'm your host, Megan Gilmore, and I am really glad that you decided to spend some time with us today. This is a pretty special episode uh, for a couple of reasons. For those of you who are listening in uh, real time, this is our August episode, and you'll know that August always marks the end of a season of podcasting here on AMI-audio, and this is the end of our second season. Thank you so much for being part of it with us. So that said, I have uh, some harder news. Um, This is actually the last episode of our podcast. Uh, There's been some changes in the podcast department at AMI, and as a result, several shows have been uh, canceled for now, including this one. And I just wanted to let you know that as we begin today's show. Uh, But do not fear, we have a great episode in store for you today. I am really excited about our guest. Stephen Bordilli is on the show. He is a designer, a writer uh, from New York City, but you likely know him, if you know him, best as the creator and one of the writers on the squeaky wheel it is a disability satire website kind of the onion of disability stories and he joins us to talk about his work uh, how he got into this what he hopes to accomplish and just why use humor to discuss disability as we end this show i just wanted us to end on a happy high note and i really hope you enjoy this conversation with steven hi steven thanks for coming on the show I imagine. For people who haven't uh, met you yet or aren't familiar with your work, just uh, introduce yourself. Sure. So my name is Evie Verdilli. I live in New York City. I'm 25 years old. I have spinal muscular atrophy. And I'm here to talk about the Streaky Reel, which is a disability-focused fat tire publication that I created around two years ago, and I've been running ever since. In that introduction, you confirmed a suspicion I have, or just like a trend that I've noticed, which is that everyone that I meet who has SMA is like incredibly uber qualified and uber accomplished. So you all seem to be like authors or entrepreneurs or fancy computer software engineer type jobs. And I just really feel like there's a very high concentration of cool jobs in in SMA land, maybe more so than there are in other pockets of disability land. You all seem like overachievers to me. Not the first person I've heard had that theory, and I sort of hold that theory myself as well. I think a lot of that stems from the fact that the sort of specifics of having SMA and that form of neuromuscular disability and using a wheelchair fits as a very stereotypical perception of what disability is. And I think a lot of times people who want to kind of amplify disabled voices and provide opportunities for disabled people are looking for people with that specific type of disability. Um, and I think that that's always been my kind of theory, that sort of SMA as a condition is just sort of well-suited for like accessibility opportunities and some different things in a way that other disabilities aren't necessarily. I think society is really accepting of certain parts of SMA that, again, other disabilities is not always the case. So I've certainly noticed that a lot of people with SMA um, are doing great work in disability space, and that's my theory, at least. Okay, that's a good one. I mean, and I guess that we're back in the day, those big telethons with, like, Jerry Lewis and stuff. 
yeah, it has very much been in the cultural consciousness for a while. Speaking of something else that is very much in the top of cultural consciousness as we are speaking in the beginning of August is something that is featured prominently on the Squeaky Wheel website, the Barbie movie. I've seen it twice. I went opening week and then the next week because my friends all couldn't come on the same time. So I've read a lot about it, watched way too many videos about Barbie, and the Squeaky Wheel, I think, has some of the best commentary on uh, Barbie land that is out there right now for those who haven't maybe watched the movie yet where have you been or um read the pieces on the squeaky wheel do you want to just describe what squeaky wheels take is on barbie sure so the story that um reposted that sort of got a lot of attention was the story realtor barbie that's revolutionary or such as the thing um one of our writers Anna passing wrote that story i really love it just because it's a really specific critique of one specific aspect of the movie, and that is that there very much is disability representation in the Barbie movie. There is two sort of visibly disabled Barbies, one who uses a wheelchair, one who uses a prosthetic arm. Both of them have like a few seconds, no lines, you just briefly see them, and that's it. And I think that really is almost like the stereotypical example of like token representation. I like that article a lot because it sort of criticizes the tokenism of it, but still celebrates the small set of representation that, that we're getting. I think disability is a lot further back than a lot of other minority groups in terms of what we expect in TV and film. And getting a little bit is better than nothing, but it's still not enough. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. The first time I went to see the movie, I went with a friend who uses a wheelchair. We were both very concerned about whether or not wheelchair Barbie, which, like, we don't know her name, so I guess that's what we can refer to her as, um, if she would make an appearance. And we both looked at each other when, when she first appears in the movie, which is fairly early on. And we're like, oh yeah, like, we're in here. And then when we were coming out of the theater after, we both kind of looked at each other and we were like, so we don't actually see her again after that one scene where she's more prominent and it was this moment of like oh like we're so happy that we were actually here yay and then oh like were we even there and i didn't even see the prosthetic arm because it's hard to see that when you're visually impaired and i would just like to throw out there there is still not yet a blind barbie which i don't understand because there's barbie dogs and they could easily make a barbie who has a guide dog totally agree. I think that'd be a great addition. And I think it's very sort of noble for disabled people watching the movie to feel kind of conflicted about that. Nice to see some representation. It's nice to think that not everything has to be about disabled characters and sometimes disabled characters can just exist without sort of it being a part of the plot of the film. But on the other side, it's a little probably when they're there for a few seconds and really have no, no purpose. Yeah, so we'll see. We'll see if we see more disabled Barbies in the movie sphere. So why don't you tell us a bit of the story about the squeaky wheel? Because I don't think your original goal with this website was, I want to like analyze the disability representation in one of the biggest summer blockbusters of the past few years. So what's the story behind how the squeaky wheel got started? Sure. So about three years ago, I was really trying to find kind of an outlet to get all of these ideas that I had in my head out into the world. A lot of them were about sort of disability and, and the weird, bizarre experiences that disabled people go through. I was very tired of kind of the stereotypical stories about disabled people being sad, being pain, being inspirational, being superheroes, sort of these like three or four classic stories. 
that you see all over the news, all over film and TV and everywhere else. And I wanted to write stories that were about like weird, awkward, disabled people and the silly, uncomfortable, kind of strange things that disabled people go through, especially that non-disabled people might not know about. I started a little bit thinking about, should I try and write short films? Should I try and write short stories? And then what I really found was that the satire format of this kind of fake news, onion-style writing lends itself really well to disability because it's so silly how mainstream media discusses disability. Most of the time, it sort of feels very much poor, non-disabled people, and it doesn't feel sort of authentic to most of us as people with disabilities, but I found it very funny to try to write in that poem. I wrote a whole bunch of stories. I posted them all over the internet. People didn't like them, and it seemed to resonate, and then pretty quickly, other people reached out. They wanted to write it for the website, and then I've just kind of built it out from there. And now it's been a little over two years. We've had 250-plus stories. We've had... 30 plus people write for us, and we just recently incorporated as a nonprofit organization. That's exciting, and we continue to grow. Well, congratulations on incorporation. You mentioned in that answer that you wrote a bunch of stories. Uh, you wrote a bunch of stories before the website launched. Like, you did a lot of work on the back end to make sure that there was content that could sustain a creative project like this. So, why was that important for you to go about that way? I think that for me is not as much of a sort of disability subject as much as it's just my artistic process and that I love to really build something out deep and make sure it's like really well-rounded, really polished before I share it with anyone. So I think I actually wrote those stories you mentioned probably 20 or so before I showed anyone at all. And then I showed them to my girlfriend and kind of got her feedback and revised them a little bit from there. Then I shared them with a few friends, got their feedback, revised them from there. And then once I felt like that was really on something and that it was really coming together, that was when I wanted to share it with the world. As a disabled person, a lot of times people don't take you seriously or don't take your work seriously. So you need to be like extra prepared and sort of ahead of the game. And I wanted to make sure that if I go online and say, look at this project I'm working on and that I write it, that it was really the best work I could do. So I uh, am just a couple of weeks away from wrapping up teaching a journalism class uh, at a college here in Ottawa. And this is something that I've tried to hopefully impress upon my students is in the era of digital media and social media in particular, people are used to being published without going through the process of publication, without going through that process of having people read what you write or see the videos that you're posting or listen to the audio that you're posting and giving their feedback and making you do revisions or just asking questions about it like people are like oh like you just have to do it once and like you don't like you have to refine your craft and it's in doing good work that you build a platform for yourself so thank you for making my point for me in a a, a more public way what would your advice then be to other creators you do seem to be one of a growing number of voices in what's becoming a growing like disability space in media whether that be podcasts or disability memoirs seem to be coming out a lot more that type of thing there seems to be more interest in this as a niche of uh, media and stories Storytelling. So what would your advice be to other creators with disabilities who want to get into that space? I think there's two things that really come to mind. First is try and find the DAF. Try to find the content that doesn't already exist. Because a lot of times you might have a great idea, but there might be 
10 people already doing that. And if that's the case, it can be not only harder to break through, but often harder to differentiate yourself. There's so many sort of, this is what my life is like as a disabled person. I've robbed and details and things like that. And some of them really are excellent and great quality, but I think a lot of them sort of suffer just because there's so much competition and there's so many people telling their story. So it's really important to differentiate why you, why you're the specific person to be making this specific art or content in this specific format. And then I think the other thing is really focus on quality over quantity. There is more than enough stuff on the internet. The internet is full of stuff. You'll never run out of stuff. And making one great thing is way better than making 10 pretty good things. So I, I really try and focus on quality and making sure that, again, everything is unique and everything is fresh and different than the stuff that other people are making. And one of the things I've appreciated as I've spent time on the squeaky wheel is that it's a professional product. Um, and I think in some cases, in some places, we let quality standards be lower if the content creators are disabled. And one of the things I appreciate about your work is, no, like, this is actually genuinely funny. Like, yes, you have to understand the joke and some people just won't get it because disability humor is a thing. It's well designed. It's put together. It, it compares well with the other type of satire news sites that it would be in the family of. So I know I've really appreciated that as somebody with a disability who comes to the content. Yeah, I mean, I really put a lot of effort into kind of how everything looked and it's sure that was consistent and high quality accessible. I got really fortunate that when I started it, I reached out to some of the other big satire publications and they were all really friendly and all the people running them, they're happy to give me advice and let me know how they did it and how they grew their platform. I also, my background is in graphic design. I think that was really helpful in making it look legitimate and really playing off of sort of how disability media look visually to other people. Because all those things come together. And again, it's just trying to make something that is the best work I can do. All of the writers, I really push them to rethink stories, to really tighten their headlines, and, and really, like you said, refine the craft and try and do the best work possible. Because if we want Speaky Real to really stand out and to really have an impact, which is all of our goals, then it needs to appeal to not only disabled people, but to non-disabled people. And that can be really hard, and that and that means you need to really be mindful and thoughtful about your jokes and your expressing them, and really trying to do something that hasn't been done. One of your articles in particular that I wanted to talk about is one that you published recently about Disability Pride Month. So first, before we talk about this article in particular, and there's a portion of it I want to read out to you and just hear more about your thoughts about what are your thoughts actually about Disability Pride Month? I'm a few years older than you. This did not exist. Um, when I was in my 20s, uh, I still don't actually know how I feel about the existence of Disability Pride Month because I'm pretty cynical about awareness days and awareness months in general. I'm like, yes, I have a disability. It's part of my life. I don't know if like I need to like wear a big sign beyond my cane about it. What are your thoughts about Disability Pride in general? I think to me, it still feels like potential. It feels like a concept that really is just just starting. So I would say in that way, I don't have a ton of feelings about it just yet. But I think that growing up with things like the MDA Telethon and Disability Employment Awareness Month, in the past, the framing around 
disability awareness and recognizing disability was often kind of either pity or inspiration. And I think just the phrasing disability pride month counters that a little bit into a little more of a celebratory tone and trying to celebrate people with disabilities who are doing cool things and who are sort of overcoming a lot of the bullshit that society puts up against them. I think the framing of it has a lot of potential, but I think the best of it is years out. I think that we're far from it being what it deserves to be. So with that in mind, I want to read you a few lines from the article. Uh, if you want to look it up, uh, listeners, the article is called Disability Pride May Have Ended, But 11 Months of Disability Shame Are Just Getting Started. If you're disappointed that July is over, your feelings are totally valid. But if you're relieved, that's valid too. Celebration is not for everyone, and your relationship to your disability is personal. And this article really stood out to me because a lot of your articles on the Squeaky Wheel website are more like, it's a satire of a news article, whereas this one feels a little bit more of an opinion piece slash personal thoughts. In that piece, and the sentences that I read out, like you're acknowledging both that there's celebratory aspects of having a disability, and there's also parts of having a disability that can be hard, and people can experience internalized shame about it, and it may not always feel like something that you want to celebrate. So why did you want to acknowledge all those things in that piece? I think that story in particular is one that is very much for the disabled people. I mean, I like to think that all of our stories are for disabled people, but that one in particular, I just got the sense from all of the posts I was seeing on social media that were extremely prideful and extremely celebratory and with those rainbow pastel colors, everyone wearing fun t-shirts and hats and really celebrating. I kind of knew in the back of my mind that there are people who hate and there are people who are watching those posts and saying, oh, I don't actually feel that way myself. Maybe they wish they felt that way, but they don't. Or maybe they sometimes feel that way, but not always. And I wanted to write a story for them. And I'm one of those people, and every day I think a lot of times I'm very comfortable and happy to talk about my disability, and it's really become a big part of my work and my life, and in that way, I'm very grateful and happy to celebrate it. But I thought it was kind of funny to say, all right, pride is over. Like, we're done with that, now let's get real, let's be serious, let's have shame. And then it was like kind of absurd and silly, and then that line that you read out loud is kind of the negative truth, that a lot of our stories are kind of three or four jokes, one relatively serious statement and then another couple jokes and that's kind of the, the little truthful part that you picked out from there mm, yeah and that it is a mix right there are so many things like like you and i are having this conversation because we both have disabilities and we work in fields that allow us to have this conversation that is a wonderful great exciting thing that i'm really grateful for and also i spent a good couple of days this week convinced that i had lost a very important piece of id that lets me get on the bus and i didn't lose it it was just sitting on my dining room table but the color contrast between the piece of id and the tablecloth isn't the best and i have a cataract growing in my eye where most of my vision is so I totally did not know it was there and it was literally in front of my face like the whole time and while it's kind of funny there's also part of me that's like that's pathetic like you put down a piece of ID and you can't even find it again and it was just sitting there yeah. the whole time you're ridiculous um, totally totally yeah. and I think all disabled people have that kind of balance feeling. yeah but the overall feeling that the squeaky wheel 
does um, is humor and you intentionally exist in a world of satire, which to be fair is a more sophisticated type of humor. It's a more sophisticated type of writing. I have a theory that when people get angry at satire, it's usually because they don't actually even understand what satire is and what its function is, but that's another story for another day. But the idea of humor and disability can be pretty fraught, right? Like we we tell we tell kids like don't laugh at that child who's wearing glasses or uses a wheelchair or has a hearing aid or like a prosthetic or whatever, right? There's a sense of you don't laugh at disability, but anyone who has one or it's part of your life, there's just crazy things that happen to you. Like I tell people all the time, I don't have a sense of humor. I just have weird eyeballs. Well, how could you not make a joke about these things? Like it's just part of it. So how do you balance that line? Like what's the difference between acknowledging just the humor and the absurdity that is life with a disability, either because of just what it means to live with one or because of the the social systems that you have to try to navigate that often don't make any sense and have ludicrous rules? Like how do you balance using humor as a way to shed light on what these real systemic problems are, but then also being like, hey, you don't make fun of someone because they live with disability? I think a big part of it is that 99% of the time, we're not sort of poking fun at the disability itself, but it's sort of the society and the disability and the relationship between them. For example, you said you have weird eyes and people might feel uncomfortable making a joke about that or might feel uncomfortable if you make a joke about that. But I think the funniest part about that whole thing is that tension of uncomfortable. The fact that no one wants to acknowledge it, the fact that people can see it but don't want to say something like that's funny. It's not the disability itself that's funny. It's the fact that, like, it exists but no one will talk about it. And that's why when we talk about it, it's funny because no one else is willing to. I think the the disability same thing is a joke that 99% of the people online wouldn't get away with or wouldn't be able to make because it feels harsh to say, oh, 11 months of disability shame are starting. But when you zoom out and you're like, all right, this is a disabled website from disabled people and they're telling the story and it's safe to laugh, it's funny. Yeah, it's fair. Even though, like, just like anyone who's experienced disability shame will tell you it's actually like when you're in the middle of it, it doesn't feel funny at all. But, like, stating the obvious thing that people don't want to say, it's a function of comedy. It always has been. Exactly. And I think with the disability shame, it's not only, again, it's not that, like, having internalized ableism is funny. It's that no one is talking about internalized ableism during Disability Pride Month. And it's funny to say it's Disability Pride Month, let's talk about our lack of pride. It's just a funny contrast. I think another idea that I talk a lot with our writers about was like, why isn't there disability rage? Why isn't there all these (laughs) other kind of... Why don't we pride? Right. No, that's fair. Yeah. Why isn't there disability sadness month? Why isn't there disability joy month? Why isn't there disability, yeah, rage, frustration, disability in, in, in genuine, um, like the innovativeness that you have to come up with when you have a disability because things are just ridiculous. Innovation, that's the word. Yeah. Because there's just a lot of disability policies that actually make no sense when you think about them. So when you live with them, you come up with all these workarounds or ways to make things work for you that really just needs to be celebrated. Exactly. Well, you know, maybe if we get a few more disability Barbies, then that would be helpful with more months. Because if you only have one doll or two dolls, then that's really only enough mascots for one month. And then they're to be more there is to be a diversity among disabilities i'm just curious a bit more about like the process of like how you go about finding your stories or like all the different avenues that humor and disability all the different ways that they connect so first steven what is the funniest thing that's happened to you recently because of life with a disability 
funniest thing that happened, okay, there's something that came to mind, and this is extremely specific, so I don't know how relatable it will be to everyone, but a piece of my wheelchair has recently broken, and it's sort of a support that helps me not slouch. It's really up straight, and it recently kind of did a bit after leaning on it for many, many years. And one day I was like, all right, it's broken. I have time on this big trip. I have to, I have to ride the bus. I have to go up this big hill, and I was like, it's going to be tough about that support. Let me try and finagle it and see if I can get it to work just for this, like, hour or two. But I know it's going to be really bumpy and hard on my body, and I really want that support during that time. So me and my girlfriend kind of rigged it up. I'm like, right, should hopefully stay for this little trip I'm about to go on. And the whole trip, every time the bus would hit a big bump, every time I would go off of a curb cut, any time there was any little bump, I would like hold my breath, waiting for it to kind of pop and it break again. And the entire time, it held up. <laughs> and I was so relieved. And where I was going was to see a show. Play. And I finally got to the play. And just as I'm sitting down and the play begins, I'm doing absolutely nothing. And I take a breath that was too deep and it pops up. No! And it made me laugh so hard because it literally, <laughs> it withstood the bus and the curb and potholes and the hill. But then me just sitting there 20 minutes into Hamlet, I took a breath and it popped up. Wow, that is hilarious. <laughs> Yeah, oh. very bizarre. It's something that's so specific that I can't imagine like anyone has experienced that exact thing. But hopefully, you, you can all understand the if you heard it. Yeah, that's really funny. My most recent story isn't as good as yours. So when I teach my class, uh, my college course that I'm teaching, I uh, usually at the beginning of the class I'll write a random question on the whiteboard, and it's like a poll question. One week it was like, "What are your thoughts on onions on pizza?" And I give some options, and it's usually something like based off of a conversation that we've had in class, or like something to do with the news, that type of thing. So last week I went to grab the whiteboard marker that was sitting on the ledge, and it like wouldn't like I couldn't pick it up because it wasn't a marker at all it was part of a uh, like extension cord or something it was like a plug um and I was convinced that it was a marker but it really looked like a marker from far away because it was like blackish and it was like marker shaped and it was sitting where the markers usually sit so I made a joke about it for my students so that they knew that it was funny Exactly, and sometimes if you don't make the joke, they're not going to see the humor in it until you point it out. Right, and like journalism can be a kind of depressing job. You know, I feel like developing a good sense of humor is helpful for you. Absolutely. So besides like going through your own life and seeing like, hey, what's the funny thing that's happened to me lately? Like, how else do you find content for the site? What's it like for you scrolling through news headlines? Are you automatically trying to find the disability angle? I think sometimes what I try to be really mindful of is not making every news event into a disability story. It came up recently with the writers when we were talking about the Titanic submersible incident where I'm sure you saw the submersible mm-hmm. mm-hmm. exploded and there was all sorts of controversy and and a lot of people pitching spooky real stories about it and it was one of those things that I was like, I just I don't think there's a disability angle here. Or if there is, we haven't found it yet. I mean, I think that's the case a lot of times, but something like Twitter rebranding as eh, the app is very silly and ridiculous, but not really a disability story. Mm-hmm. But I try to be mindful of, like, let's not force it. Yeah. And I think a lot of times it's unnaturally because there might be an incident where the whole world is missing the same one or two jokes. And more like, oh, when you put the disability lens on it, there's a third joke that pops out that no one else thinks about. 
For example, the Tenor Tarl, I can remember them, yep. I should know that. One of our writers wrote a story about how he's the biggest benefits recipient in all of Europe. <laughs> yeah, I saw that headline. And it's something that, like, I don't know that the Onion really could get away with or another satire publication because it's so specific to disabled people, that feeling of people only look down on receiving benefits if you're disabled, if you're the king and your royalty, then being funded by the government is like an honor, yeah. not something to be thankful about. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was a really good example of taking a general news story that doesn't feel about disability and making it about disability. You mentioned working with other writers and like having to refine their ideas. What have you learned about disability as you work with them? Oh, so, so much. I cannot give them enough credit. There's so many excellent writers. That story in particular was written by Leslie. He's been I think our third writer and has been writing for us for a couple of years has written so many great stories. But I think mostly it's just that all disabled people have different experiences and different senses of sugar. And it's been challenging because a lot of times people come to me and they want to publish a story. And I try really hard to never just outright say, like, no, I don't get it or, or anything <laughs> like that. It's always like, all right, this is the part I don't get or this part I think might be crossing a line or or maybe there's a funnier word we can use here. It's always about like trying to make what I think will appeal to a lot of disabled people and sometimes to non-disabled people. And a lot of times there's stories that like people submit them to me and I'm like, all right, this is good and I'll post it. And then people will comment, you know, this is the funniest freaky real story ever. And this is so real. I relate to this so much. And it makes me so happy because I don't know all the things that disabled people experience. I know the ones that I experience. And it makes me feel great that we have writers who are sort of talking about experiences that other people relate to, even if I can't. And then I try to remove myself out of it as much as I can and really let those, that variety of experiences shine throughout the publication. So outside of your work at the squeaky wheel, uh, like you actually have like another full time gig. You work in increasing disability representation in media. Um, so I just wonder if you could like describe a little bit about what that job is and why this is important for you. Sure. So I've worked sort of my day job. I've been there for six years at NBC Universal, very big TV, media, film, entertainment company. I actually work in corporate communications and I do some design and some writing for them. But as a part of my job, I get to do some disability advocacy work there because there aren't a lot of people who have vocal opinions about disability standards that I do when I was spoke up and so I wanted to sort of add that voice to the table. And I was very fortunate that they were receptive and it really given me a lot of cool opportunities in that way. And a lot of it is just trying to make sure that everything we do, we're being mindful of accessibility. And then with TV and film, with content, I'm always looking for good representation and things that could be better. And then sending them to people I work with saying, look, you know, these are great examples. Let's do more stuff like this. Or let's see if we can add this title to one of our platforms. Or can mm. we post it on our website to give them extra views? There's no one whose job it is pretty much at any time to just look out for disabled people and make sure that they're being celebrated and amplified and that their work is being in a heard. So if I can do that and bring sort of any work or people to spotlight and get them more attention, that's always something that makes me feel really good. Like for you, what what does authentic disability representation look like? Um, I think the sort of most obvious thing with TV and film is tech. 
disabled after. I think as disabled people, we grow very skeptical and inspire someone is tipping up, as they call it, performing a disability for the camera. So I think that's kind of the minimum. That's like the baseline. Anything below that, I don't think you're really concerned that much because it's rarely good. I can think of a couple examples that I like, but they're only because the writers did such a great job. And that brings me to the next point. And I think it's even more authentic and more impactful when it's not only a disabled actor playing a disabled character, but when the people off the screen behind yeah. the camera have disabilities, whether it be the writer, the director, even a lot of projects use disability consultants now, certainly better than nothing. Any time that the input is given to the script before it goes to production, a lot of it shines through, and you'll see moments on screen that you're like, oh, only a disabled person would have written that line or would have captured that sort of nuance mm. that would have otherwise easily been it. Do you have a favorite piece of disability representation? I have a few. Just this week for the first time, I bought Then Barbara Met Allen. Okay, I have not seen this. Is, it's so, so good. I recommend it enough. It's on Netflix, at least in the U.S., and it has a British made-for-TV film about kind of the fight for disability rights in England. And it's so evident from, like, the first 30 seconds that, like, oh, this is made by a bunch of disabled people. There's no way that this tone, this approach, this feeling, these lines would have come to life if it weren't for people that actually lived through these experiences. And what I loved about that one so much was it's a movie about the fight for disability rights. It seems very kind of political and maybe inspirational, maybe sort of social justice. And while it's all of those things, it's also like really funny and there's a lot of great jokes. There's a lot of cursing and there's sex and there's drugs and there's all these other things that people don't expect to overlap. And it really portrays how disability culture is cruel and punk and rebellious and all of those things. I, I really enjoyed that film so much. It's interesting for me listening to you talk because, so I'm a few years older than you, and when I was getting started working in journalism, I remember being very hesitant to talk or write much about my disability. I would do stories every once in a while where the sources and the people that started about were disabled, but not necessarily mine. Um, but I've noticed a like younger writers who are disabled there doesn't seem to be that same feeling of apprehension around talking about it so openly or like bringing it to the table so like how do you feel about your professional life being so connected to your disability in a very like public way like this um i would say i find it really exciting for me it's almost new because prior to i take one on one which is when I started this pretty real and when I kind of got more involved at NBC Universal and in some disability projects, I never had worked on anything like the disability. As you were talking about writing stories as a journalist, when I was in college, I was a writer and, and designer for the student newspaper for four years. I wrote probably 30 or 40 stories and not one of them had anything to do. And it's one of those things that, like, I always knew there was a potential, but I didn't know how or how to get disability into my work. That sort of 2020 COVID year when everyone had more time because things were closed and stuff like that, it really sort of hit me. Like, I live this wildly different life than a lot of people I know. Why am I not using all those experiences and knowledge to my benefit? Why am I not incorporating that into my work? because it's like one of the most defining characteristics about me. Well, Stephen, before I let you go, I have a few more questions before we get to the final questions. First, where can people go to find out more about you and your work? First, I would say if you want to read more about the Sprinky Reel, go to thesprintyreel.org. 
Or if you want to see more about me, you can go to stevenzardelli.com, my website, or you can find both me and the Spinji Reel on Instagram. Now, before I get to the final questions, there's something very important that we need to talk about. Let's hear it. And that's the Muppets. I know you're I a love big fan. Muppet. Yes. I just want to give you some time to express your, your Muppet love. So we're going to do this in a series of rapid fire questions that I'm coming up with at the top of my head right now. Your first Muppet memory. My first Muppet memory would be going to the, the Muppet Vision 3D in Disney. Oh, that's cool. Your favorite Muppet? Kermit. Classic. Why Kermit? I don't know. I just, I like that Kermit is very professional, but kind of silly. And I think there's not enough characters out in the world who both have a sense of humor and care about their work. And he's always, he's passionate about the Muppet show going on as planned, as a schedule. He's ready. He's prepared. He's a very professional worker. He has a sense of humor that he's running a comedy show. In some ways, you, you've gone with that, right? Like, you're a professional guy who's making a website, making sure it keeps going, and you have a sense of humor about it. It's a satire website. Anytime I can be compared to Kermit, I'll take it. <laughs> Do you think Kermit and Miss Piggy actually make a good couple? Um, I think it's a little toxic at Yeah. But toxic in a way that's entertaining for us, and I think that deep down, Kermit and Miss Piggy want to put on a show. So their relationship is just part of the show for us. Oh, they were reality TV stars before there was reality TV. Exactly. Okay, that's a good take on it. People who know me know that I have very strong opinions for this next question, but your favorite Muppet movie? The Jason Segel one, which I think is just called the Muppet movie. Yep. It's 2009, something yep. like that. Yeah, right that there. Okay. Okay, mine, what about is, you? mine is the Muppet Christmas Carol. It is the best adaptation of the Christmas Carol. I don't really even understand why people watch other versions. I do love the Muppet Christmas Carol, except those like weird little ghost things. Oh yeah, those are really scary. Yeah, I don't fuck with them. They're scary. But I just think it's really great. Gonzo has some really great lines about omniscient narrator, which is a specific literary technique that are just really clever. If the Muppets could... Do a Muppet adaptation of any classic work of literature. What would you like them to do? Ooh, that's a great question. The Muppets should do any classic work of literature. I know this is not it's not a straight answer, but on YouTube someone made Muppet Hamilton. And I think it's the funniest thing ever. Also not quite literature, it's a musical. But I'm just a big fan of the Muppet Hamilton. So shout out to the guy that made that. And I like more Muppet musicals. Okay, that sounds good. Okay, so Stephen, before we let you go, final questions we ask everyone on the show. You've talked, obviously, a lot of, a lot of the, the different connections that you've made with people through your disability and through your writing and all that type of things. But in what areas of your life do you still find it hard to connect because of the experience of living with a disability? Um, I think one thing that makes it hard for me to connect with people is I require a lot of assistance to do a lot of different things. So, for example, if I want to eat a meal with someone, go out to lunch with someone I just met. I usually need to either go with a friend or uh, one of my nurses or my girlfriend or someone who's able to help me get set up to eat, help me use the bathroom if I need to use the bathroom while I'm there. So I think a lot of times that can make it challenging because I don't often meet with people one-on-one. -on -one. Not to say I never do, I certainly do on occasion, but it's hard to sort of travel far and and to do longer durations of events without someone who knows me well or can help me with those things. Mm -hmm. And that's a major challenge to connect with people. So I'm not too familiar with. Mm. Yeah, that's fair. 
And and given that and everything else that we talked about, what does a good connection look like for you? I think one great sign of a good connection is someone who I'm comfortable asking for help and asking for assistance. I try to tell a lot of the vendor people that submitted asking people for help is not something to get embarrassed about. It's actually quite empowering. And if you're willing to trust people to help you and vendors that might be a little vulnerable or a little awkward, you can do so much more if you have that trust in people. And one example I'll sort of leave at that is one of the writers for Spooky Real recently was visiting New York City, and I was like, oh, this is so cool to not meet out. Someone I had, you know, texted and then talked to over emails and whatnot, but I never met with in person, and we decided to meet for coffee. And I had to decide, I was like, right, so I tried and bring my nurse with me, and, and sort of they can help me get my coffee and things like that. But so I banged on this random person to write Again, I've only talked to over text and emails to sort of just hold the cup, help me with a straw, do little things that for most people seem small, but for me, I'm thinking about days in advance and like, how am I going to reach the cup to my mouth? Things like that. But knowing it was someone else who was disabled and someone who I'm sure has such weird experiences themselves, I was like, right, I'll let them help me and hopefully that'll be wrong and it'll be easy and smooth. And it totally was. And I think it made for a great connection because it made it easier for us to chat and not have to have an extra person there and get to know each other. So anyone I trust and am comfortable asking for help, I think that really can make a great connection. Yeah, that's a great story. Well, Stephen, thanks so much for spending all this time with us today. I am excited to see where your website and where the work goes. Really looking forward to seeing all that you do with the squeaky wheel and beyond. And you so, so much. This was fun. Connecting Disability is a production of AMI-audio. It's written and produced by me, Megan Gilmore, the technical production by Nizreen Abdel-Majid. Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. Special thanks to today's guest, Stephen Verdilli. I want to take a moment to um, thank all the people who've been part of this show throughout the past two years. Nizreen did most of the technical production, but we did have some help from other uh, current and past AMI employees, specifically Sam Robinson and Jacob Shymansky. Uh, thanks to all the guests who've come on for the past two years. It has been an honor to get to interview some of my heroes, to introduce the audience to some old friends, and to make some new friends in the past 24 episodes. Uh, I've deeply enjoyed it, and I'm so thankful for all your time. At the end of every episode, I've always given a shout out to people in my life who've made this possible in some way or another. Uh, And today I want to especially send a thank you out to you, the audience. Uh, This show only existed because of you. And yeah, thanks for spending the last two years with me. What some of you may not know is while we were producing this show, I was completing a master's degree. I was also reporting some very emotionally challenging articles uh, that made me want to quit my job on sometimes an hourly basis. And this podcast for me was a chance to have fun and to remember why a lot of us got into this industry to begin with and a lot of it has to do with that personal connection so thank you for giving me your time for letting me into your earbuds 
and just uh, spending these hours with me. I am very grateful. Um, yeah, I'll still be around. There's some contact info in the show notes, and I truly hope that we get to connect again soon.